Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, we begin with that spat between the EU and AstraZeneca as the pharmaceutical giants refusing to cave in to demands that it takes vaccine supplies from its British factories to increase doses going to the EU. Well, the root of the dispute, according to AstraZeneca, is agreements with the UK and the EU that prioritise the UK. And it's also been a production glitch in Belgium. The health commissioner of the EU, Stella Kyriakides, says it's a breach of contract. Not being able to ensure manufacturing capacity is against the letter and the spirit of our agreement. We reject the logic of first come, first served. Now, we intend to defend the integrity of our investments and the taxpayers' money that has been invested. But Astra says the delays are down to the EU putting it, its order in three months after Britain. And in response, Boris Johnson has said that shortages in the EU are really a matter for our EU friends and the companies concerned and that he's confident in vaccine supplies for the UK programme. It came as the Prime Minister said England's lockdown is going to continue for another six weeks at least and that schools may only reopen after March the 8th. With 37,000 people in hospital suffering from COVID and the infection rate still forbiddingly high, you, we all, must be cautious. And we all want only to open schools when we can be sure that this will not cause another huge surge in the disease. And Boris Johnson will also announce a roadmap for easing restrictions after February the 22nd. Well, joining us now to discuss this is Taiwa Owatemi, Labour MP for Coventry North West. Taiwa, good to have you with us. I mean, let, let's start there, shall we? Um, a roadmap then from February 22nd, looking at opening schools from March the 8th. Does this feel right to you? Does this feel uh, timing wise OK, given where we are in terms of case numbers? Um, thank you so much for having me into the programme. Um, as you've said earlier, it's really important that we have a really effective vaccination program and that we ensure that our vaccine is rolled out effectively. Now, given that um, the UK has 100,000 deaths, which is one of the highest um, death tolls in Europe, and initially um, the government's own um, chief scientific officer, Sir Patrick Vallant, has estimated a figure of 20,000 deaths. Now, given that the government, given that the COVID death is five times what was originally estimated, I do believe that it is important that public health and safety messaging is what the government should prioritise. And, and what I'm actually looking um, to hear from the government is how it's going to ensure that um, they consider hospital capacity, but also that they look at just the amount of people that's been vac- vaccinated um, and that key workers are also vaccinated um, as part of the easing programme that the government hopes to uh, outline later on. 
But Taiwo, I suppose part of the issue is the schools, and and people will be disappointed. Many parents will be disappointed that there's no prospect of going back to school before March the eighth.、Uh, do you think, in a way, this is too cautious, perhaps? Education has been one of the sectors that's been hit the most actually during COVID guidelines, and many young people haven't had the ability to learn as they should have been learning, and this has significantly impacted. Their mental health, and, and I believe that in order for us to return back to society, actually, what we need to do is ensure that our teachers are vaccinated, but also that parents have that confidence that when their children do go back to school, that they're also、um, safe, and that when they go back home, that they're not bringing back the virus、uh, virus back to、um, their parents at home. So I, I genuinely believe that in order for us to return back to normality, and、um, we need to have an effective vaccine rollout plan, which involves key workers such as teachers. The issue with that, though, is that if you put key workers as a high priority in terms of vaccination, it means delaying vaccinating vulnerable people who are possibly more likely to die of the virus, and then your your, your death toll goes up, and and that is a continuation of a human tragedy. Absolutely not.、Um, well, I have been calling on what and what the Labour Party has been calling them is simultaneous vaccination of key workers and the four key priority groups, and that would mean actually、um, increasing the kind of vaccination rollout to a twenty-four hours vaccination plan. To ensure that everyone's being vaccinated, we have to have a plan that involves ensuring that the most vulnerable in our society are well protected, but also we're able to return back to normality. And the only way we can do that is for key functions, which are done by key workers, are also being protected、um, and being able to run back effectively. So we have to be able to do both things simultaneously. But I suppose it's the de- it's the definition of key workers that concerns a lot of people. Tao, I mean, some people would say that anyone who works in any way in the health service, others would say, well, no, it has to be the front line people. Similarly, with teachers, does it involve everyone to do with schools? I mean, how do you define a key worker? Well, that's a very good question. Now, most NHS staff have already been vaccinated, and that's been a priority. And anyone that works with vulnerable people, so care home staff,、um, should also be vaccinated. They should be prioritised. Teachers and、um, teachers are fundamental not only because they、um, look after vulnerable children, but also because actually without education running back, many key workers who work in the NHS won't be able to return back effectively to work.、Um, the, issue, the, the thing is, you have to be able to prioritise key sectors which have stayed open during COVID, and that would mean also actually considering places like the police,、um, who have also been working very hard during this. Um, okay, so that's the, the the vaccination situation there. What about the、uh, w- w- the spat that's playing out between AstraZeneca and the EU? The UK clearly heavily involved in this. Should Britain be sending vaccines then to the EU before we've vaccinated a critical mass of our own people? Well, apart from the contractual obligation AstraZeneca has for the UK, morally, again, we have to remember the UK has the worst death toll. In Europe, we have, we have 100,000 deaths, and currently the situation is: yes, we are vaccinating our people, and yes, the vaccination rollout is, is going well. And、um, we're still in a situation where there's a postcode lottery, where not everywhere across the country has been vaccinated, and not every centre has the vaccination to the quantity that we need. So, until until we get that, I don't, I don't think that、um, I think that it's, it's really fundamental to, to ensure that the most vulnerable people within the United Kingdom are well protected. But this strays into the area of vaccine nationalism, doesn't it? And the World Health Organization, amongst others, has been saying it's all very well for the rich nations to squabble over all this. In the end, nobody is safe until everybody is safe, and that's that's probably true, isn't it? 
That is true, um, and that's why it's really important that every nation has an effective vaccination um, rollout. But like I said, given that we have one of the highest death tolls in Europe, it's also actually um, fundamentally right for us to ensure that our citizens are vaccinated. So that when we do, when we do go into Europe, when we do visit Europe, that we have to reduce the transmission rate that we could then um, affect. But actually, we are ensuring, um, we are taking into account our, our national and international obligation to ensure that we are not responsible for the spread of COVID-19. Uh, and what about the EU in all of this? I mean, clearly they're not behaving particularly well, and it arguably serves to uh, to confirm what a lot of Brexiteers say about the bloc. They're slow, they're bureaucratic, they're protectionist. Those prejudices are being confirmed here, aren't they? Well, I understand the EU's um, concerns, and obviously they are trying to um, prioritise their own citizens, and this is a situation which they have to find an effective way for them to overcome it, but as as an MP for uh, a British-English uh, um, constituency, my priority is to ensure that the citizens of the United Kingdom are well vaccinated and protected. Let's talk about the, the lockdown and the effects of it, because one of the big things that's been of a concern is uh, the provision of, of school meals, of meals generally, to people who are very much damaged by what's been going on, probably coming from difficult situations even before that in terms uh, of poverty. Um do you think the government's now got a handle on the whole free school meals issue? Well, you, you know my view. I, I think that food should not be a luxury. And it is very sad and frustrating that in the sixth richest country, the politics is being played in just providing food for the most vulnerable in our society. And even now we're still speaking about what's going to happen in February half term. And what is the government going to do? And it's just... It's actually frustrating that they're delivering, they're delaying, and they're not prioritising the needs of families who desperately need it. And, you know, it, it is great that many community groups are coming out, you know, like um, Commentary Food Bank for my constituency, who are working hard to meet those needs. But essentially, it is the government's priority to ensure that the most vulnerable societies need to met. And right now, I don't think the government really understands that. They've been extended, though, free school meals until March the 8th. So the government, arguably, is, is stepping up here. It, yes, but again, it, it, but, but this is not about extension. This is about ensuring that this is a norm. It is ensuring that families don't have to wait to think about what's going to happen in summer. And this is a situation we saw in the spring or half term, in Christmas. It, it, it shouldn't be an ongoing debate. This should have been cross-party consensus from the very beginning when the situation and came where we all agreed that actually during this difficult time where universal credits are being cut, where families are losing um, their jobs, where um, most most families who actually need these are, work, are, are from parents who are in working poverty. But we work together and we value to ensure that they do not think about where their next meal is coming from. And again, I'm, I'm, it, it's good to see that the government is, is, is trying, um, is making a decision to, to provide things in March. But what's going to happen in July? What's going to happen in, September, in October half term? What's going to happen in December? And we, what we want to see, what I want to see actually, there's so many families in my constituency who are desperate What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. 
Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. The Prime Minister heading to Scotland today, where he's expected to praise the efforts of the United Kingdom as a whole in tackling coronavirus. No guesses, uh, no prizes for guessing what he is trying to do here. Boris Johnson will say a united Britain has been integral in administrating the vaccine and providing testing during the pandemic. But Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon says she doesn't think the PM should be travelling during lockdown. Me travelling from Edinburgh to Aberdeen to visit a vaccination centre right now is not essential. Boris Johnson travelling from London to wherever in Scotland he's going to do the same is not essential. We're asking other people to abide by that. I do think it probably is incumbent on us to do likewise. Meanwhile, the Scottish Government is unveiling its budget. The Finance Secretary, Kate Forbes, said she's setting out spending plans with her hands tied behind her back due to the timing two months, of course, before Chancellor Rishi Sunak's own budget in March that establishes how much money is available for Scotland. Of course, all this comes amid growing calls for the second referendum on Scottish independence, according to recent polls, and that very much in Boris Johnson's mind, I'm sure, as he travels north. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be an interesting day in that respect and an interesting year, really, as we see all of this play out. And then uh, a bit of geopolitics for you. Bloomberg reporting that Japan is pushing back against Boris Johnson's proposals to invite Australia, India and South Korea to the G7 meeting in Cornwall in June. This comes amid concerns, among other nations, that the UK is trying to reshape the G7 by the back door by establishing this coalition of 10 countries to counter China. So sort of a major geopolitical play. Um, and then domestically, you have more concern about this going on in Cornwall. That's a little... Uh, Side, another, side note, really. Yes, another thing altogether. Apparently there's a very nice um, uh, pool that you can have by the beach, a hot tub. And uh, I can imagine a lot of diplomacy Ooh, will go on there. Right, let's now talk about the pandemic. One of the key factors in it is how far the government can bring the public along with them in following the rules and taking advice, especially when it comes to getting the vaccine. Now, Kantar's got some interesting polling just out on all this, and joining us, I'm very pleased to say, is Dr. Michelle Harrison, Global CEO at Kantar Public. Uh, Michelle, thanks for being back with us. Now, there's been a lot of talk about vaccine hesitancy. What are the figures on if people are willing to have the jab? What, what, What are you finding out? So the figures we've just got through this morning um, are a surprise to me because we are we've seen a shift towards a wholesale support of uh, vaccination rollout, which differentiates us, um, you know, to other countries in Europe. So uh, as of as of yesterday, 77% of the British population saying they intend to have the vaccine, and that's up 12% um, over last month. So that that's really significant couple of other things that are very interesting about it. The majority of people are open to the idea of any time of day, any place, including, um, you know, being perfectly willing to go to the supermarket if the supermarket network's being used for cold storage. There's a preference for GPs and pharmacists, but we have got this wholesale support. And if you look at this issue of anti-vax and uh, that specific problem that we've been very concerned about of distrust for pharma stopping people wanting to get the vaccine it's now showing as very low just six percent so there are a group a minority group who have health concerns and who want more information about it but this is looking like a different picture to the rest of europe that's really interesting so people in britain really getting on board with the idea of of having the vaccine what is driving that in terms of convincing them i I mean there have been lots of campaigns uh quite splintered to 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 get people to have a vaccine what is chiming with these people uh, and what is holding back people who are still hesitant so i think anecdotally and we're going to do some more work on this 
I think there's actually something about the, the, the almost the branding of it. People are talking about the Oxford vaccine. It sounds very local. It sounds very familiar. It sounds very trustworthy. But that, that's more anecdotal. I mean, what we do know is that the impact of the lockdown on the economy is hitting really hard. And we've got the, the figures we've got are, again, the most significant um, we've seen. 39% of uh, British households saying they're finding it harder to meet their monthly household bills now than at any time uh, since the pandemic started uh, a, a year ago. Now that, you know, I think, I think people are very worried about their health, but they've reached the point where they see this as the, as the only way out of it. It's the closest I would say we've seen in a long time to having overwhelming consensus about the right way forward. And if you look at the way the Brits are getting behind the vaccine, it really does contrast as to how they didn't get behind uh, you know, track and trace. And I think some of that's cultural. We're more open to a scientific answer than, than this one of, of people knowing where you are and what you're doing. <laughs> but what about the suggestion that people might be forced to take the vaccine? I mean, that's an I mean, the government isn't going to do it, or they're not saying they're going to do it. But I think some people think it might be a good idea. What do people think of that? No, I mean, we've got nearly half of our respondents saying they believe it should be compulsory. I mean, again, that's extraordinary. When you look at how, uh, you know, how people felt about track and trace, which they were very nervous of. Um, so this is, you know, it's playing, I think, well to our culture. You have a much higher proportion of people amongst uh, the over 60s who believe it should be compulsory. I think, I think uh, there's a recognition that Britain has been hit very, very hard. I think people are desperate to get through the other side. We're seeing 90% of people, almost 90%, saying they're following lockdown rules and i think there's a feeling that this is the moment that we can get ahead of it and people are getting behind the vaccine is is there some sort of assumption though that this is the final lockdown i mean i feel like a lot of people both anecdotally in my life and and through the media went through 2020 on the assumption that it was a 2020 thing and here we are in 2021 getting to the end of january we're still in lockdown we're only now talking about setting out a roadmap for getting out of this thing it's still feeling quite remote um so so are people are, are people sort of getting to the point now where they may be starting to question i think that where where we're at is that they're willing to do this if it could get us through it and the desperate need to be able to get through it i mean i think at the moment the fear on the health side unites us the one thing we do need to be very aware of is the Im economic impact is very divisive. So you've got 39% of households saying, you know, it's much harder now than it was a year ago to uh, make their monthly bills. We've got four in 10 saying they feel very job insecure. Flip side of that is half the population, 51%, saying they've not been affected economically. So once we do get through the health crisis, and there's a a moment when we do have herd immunity and we're coming through it, the economic impact has been very divisive. So that is something the government's going to have to be very watchful for. And uh, Michelle, is there is there an age divide in, in in some of these things? There seems to be, you know, age divide perhaps in those who are most badly hit by uh, the economic issue, but also perhaps in those who are willing to go along with the restrictions. I mean, is it mainly the old who are playing along, perhaps because they have less at stake? So with the figures we've got, we've now got these large majorities again who are going along with things. So that does include young people. But in the figures we see, yes, younger people are disproportionately affected economically. They are also, though, less likely to say that they're following every 
you know, every part of the lockdown advice. But again, just to emphasise the figures, almost 90% saying they are following lockdown right now. And I think that's, you know, it's to do with the fact that this, this feels so serious. We're, we're almost back to this idea of, of, of a wartime spirit. And, and for that small group who aren't, the reasons they're giving is they're breaking lockdown rules because of mental health needs or to support a family or friend rather than not understanding what's being required. So there has been a sea change. You know, I think, I think it's the sheer weight of the number of people who've died, how many lives have been touched, the economic catastrophe, but this willingness to go with a scientific solution to the health problems. And, and what about the economic impact of this? I mean, I, there are two strands, really, that I want to run past you. One is this data I saw out of the ONS today, furlough rate at the highest since July, 17% of the workforce in the UK uh, between December the 28th and January the 10th. Uh, and at the same time, you've got Brexit. I mean, we're hearing all these stories about a, a sort of prices going up, shelves empty, and also buying things from abroad becoming more expensive. So all of this, is this having some sort of an impact on how people are feeling about their finances? Yeah, and do remember that we don't, or we, you can often see signals in polling that, you know, at first glance can look very contradictory, but they're rooted in sort of different areas of, of cultural belief. So, you know, we have got this very big impact, almost 40% really struggling economically, saying they're finding it harder to make their household bills. Then if you ask a different set of questions about Brexit, uh, the majority of British people think that food's going to become more expensive. Um, as a result of Brexit, they're expecting that. But if you ask, you know, whether or not if there was another referendum, they would vote to rejoin the European Union, figures are 34%, lowest we've seen them. So, you know, there are issues to do with, um, you know, clarity and certainty about what people want in terms of the future direction of Britain. And that can sit alongside uh, what they're feeling is that is very painful at the moment in terms of the economic impact at the households of COVID. So how does all this then translate into voting intentions? We know there's not an election coming up anytime soon. It's apart, of course, from the local elections, potentially in May. But if people are more reconciled to the way the government is handling this, does this also mean that they like Boris Johnson more or they're more likely to vote Conservative? A little bit of a shift and Conservatives are up uh, by two points. Labour, no change. So Conservatives at 40, Labour at 37. And if I was to just take a step back, I would say... The government might get forgiven for, you know, the, all of the problems with, um, with track and trace if they pull off this vaccine rollout. So still, you know, about half the population think the government is handling things poorly, but slight increase in those who think that they are handling it well. At the moment, they don't think there's an alternative. So I would say the Conservatives are just about holding on in there and showing a little bit of an upswing this month. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.